and go back with me to James chapter 4 this evening. James 4, we started through verses 1 to 5 this morning, and we'll pick up in verse 6 and work our way down through verse 10 this evening. Recently, Melinda and I were having a conversation looking to the future, still a few years in front of us, which is good, uh, but talking about scholarships and college and all that kind of stuff, and uh, just doing a little bit of research and looking and um, reading as to uh, different things that are out there that are available, and uh, it's kind of intriguing to me. Uh, in fact, within our own state, uh, there was some information that came through my email the last couple days that talks about scholarships available to high school students, elementary students, and uh, just reading through in these different programs, what do you have to do to qualify? And, um, you know, as we would well expect with some of those, it's dependent on your grades to go, uh, you need to achieve these grades or this grade point average, or you need to have this score on the SAT or the ACT. Uh, others are based on certain gifts or maybe talents that a student has. Um, but others are just recognitions of life situations. Uh, those are some of the ones that kind of intrigue me to go, uh, well, where do you live? And that could make the difference. In fact, even in a Pennsylvania legislature right now, if you're living in a failing district, there's some uh, new things being discussed to provide aid to students living in a failing school district. And if you live there, not based on what you earned, but based on what, where you live, this could be available to you. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes it is based on income to go, you know, based on what you have, or maybe we could say what you don't have, uh, here's an opportunity for you to receive some financial assistance along the way. We come to James chapter 4. My question for you is, what do you have to do to qualify for God's grace? I hope that kind of hits you as like, We've been in talking about grace for several weeks now, and there ought to be an answer that immediately comes to your mind that goes, grace is never earned. Grace is never earned. It is unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor and enablement from God. And yet, we look at a text today, like one we looked at at the beginning of our study, that tells us God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I would remind us as we work through this text in the moments ahead that when we say God gives grace to the humble, that does not mean that we are earning it. Rather, it is the disposition which qualifies us simply because we know our need. It would be rather silly for me to say, because I live in the state of Pennsylvania, if I go to this college in Pennsylvania, I have earned this scholarship that goes to people who live in Pennsylvania. Aren't you proud of what I earned? Or to turn around and go, you know, based on an income level, I qualify for this scholarship, and so based on what I don't make, do you like what I earned? When we come to this text, what we ought to realize is our qualification is simply a recognition of our need. To go, you know what? I am weak. I am sinful. I stand in need of help. And in that humility, God says, I'll give you what you need. I'll meet you there. It is unearned, undeserved favor from God. 
I tried to explain this morning, I view verse 6 in the text as a bit of a dividing line by way of analogy or illustration. To go, God resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Verses 1 through 5, here's what the proud looks like. Here's what the self-sufficient looks like. It creates all kinds of problems. And then in verses 6 through 10, well, what does it look like then to live in humility and be a recipient of grace? We ask you to think back in your mind to some of the themes that we touched on, not necessarily the outline structure, but the themes that we touched on this morning as to what are the effects of pride in verses 1 through 5. There's interpersonal conflict, wars and fightings that show up. There's unsatisfied desires. I want, but I don't have, so I'm going to keep fighting even if I have to mistreat others in the process. There's unthinkable hostility in those opening verses to go, you want and you don't have, so you kill because you want to have. And the list could go on. I mean, the effects of self-centered, self-sufficient, just flat-out selfish living are stark in verses 1 through 5. I would ask you to think through this, and I find it helpful for me. I don't, um, certainly we can't answer it correctly Uh, But if you were to think, so how should God respond to that kind of living? I wonder what kind of words or responses would come to mind. To go, here's people who don't, they don't think they need God. They're not going to talk to Him. And when they do talk to God, it's all about themselves. And they mistreat others. How would you expect God to respond? And there's a side that's like, they deserve justice. They deserve judgment. They deserve punishment. In fact, the reality is we all do. And that is part of God's coming response, no doubt, as we look at Scripture. When we look at James chapter 4, in the light of how the Spirit of God has inspired James here, I want you to see God's response before we go further. We might call see it this way as our first point for this evening, the kindness of God. Where do these wars and fightings come from? Don't they come from inside of you? Your selfish desires? Isn't that what's playing out in your life as you want these things, you can't get them, so you kill? And because you keep working hard to obtain, you're going to keep going to battle and to war? You're not going to ask God, so you're not going to have from Him. And when you do ask God, you're going to ask for your own selfish reasons, and so you're not going to get that either. You are adulterers and adulteresses. You are a friend of the world and an enemy of God. Don't you remember what the scripture says? And then he comes out of that and says, but he giveth more grace. What an amazing response from our God, where in kindness, he reaches out to us in our sinfulness and our selfishness. You see, unconditionally, unilaterally, very intentionally, God reaches out to mankind in his sin. It is not that grace started with humility in the first place. We're going to go there. We're going to see what the text says next in a a moment. But again, realize that before we ever showed any humility, God in his grace began to reach out to mankind. I think of the text we looked at in First Tim or Second, yeah, First Timothy last week. Uh, no, Second Timothy last week, and uh, the reminder there that God had planned this before the world had ever begun. Or we could watch God reach out to Abraham. 
God has chosen over and over in mankind's sinfulness and selfishness to go, I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to show you this favor that you in no way earn so that our sin and selfishness might be broken, so that we might be restored and returned to him. Just as we look at that opening phrase in verse 6, he gives more grace. I think it's worth noting and highlighting and praising the character of our God. That we have a God who when sin abounds, Romans chapter 5, says grace did much more abound. You know, I am going to meet you there and give you the favor that you need. That word more there, by the way, is a comparative adjective of scale. Most often it is very simply translated great or greater. Like more works, okay? But sometimes we think of more, like we had dessert this afternoon and dad went back for seconds. He had more. It was like a little bit more. It wasn't a lot more. So I think of more as like, well, yeah, there's a little bit. You understand when God gives grace, it is more than enough. It is abundant. It is great grace. That's the character of our God. That's the kindness of our God. But as we look at how does God respond, we want to move past the kindness, or maybe we could say develop further the kindness of God in looking secondly at the continuation of grace. The continuation of grace. He says, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And we ought to be keyed in again with those words, wherefore he saith, to realize we're being taken to Scripture once more. You could take the time to go back and look if you'd like, but we hit this in 1 Peter 5. It's an allusion to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, where this principle is given. To say, as God begins to work in his grace, he continues to show grace to those who respond to him in humility, who see their need, who see their weakness, who turn to him for help. But on the other hand, he stands against those who are proud. I want us to briefly consider these two contrasting thoughts once more again. We did look at them now several months ago in 1 Peter 5. We could say the first one this way. Uh, First, living for self means we'll be opposed by God. Living for self means we'll be opposed by God. This word here in James 4 is the same as 1 Peter 5. It's a word that speaks of resisting uh, in the sense of a military term. I'm going to arrange in battle against. I'm going to set up my forces to protect what is mine. text is telling us God chooses to position himself in opposition to those who have chosen to live for themselves. Again, I would remind us, Our culture, because they don't see anything greater to live for, often pushes the message that says, you do you. Live for yourself. Do whatever makes you happy. Pursue your dream. And if it's good for you, great. If it works for you, great. There is no higher standard for pleasure or for what is right or wrong than you yourself. And yet again, Scripture confronts that kind of thinking. To go, you are not a law unto yourself. Your life is not to be lived simply for yourself. I think of those words again that I referenced this morning in Mark 8, where we are told that the one who seeks to save his life, to protect his life, to maintain his life, will lose it. 
but the one who follows Christ and is willing to lose his life for Christ's sake and for the gospels, the same shall find it. Pride is part of what God hates. It is an abomination to him, Proverbs chapter 6. But here we're reminded that pride is something that God stands against in my life and in yours. I think of those vivid pictures painted in the prophets. It's not been too long ago we were uh, working through Old Testament survey. We looked at Obadiah. Remember the Edomites there? Their habitation is high. They've built themselves homes up in the side of a cliff on a rock. God comes before him in Obadiah 1, 3, and 4 and says, The pride of thine heart that hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, who says in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? He says, Though thou exalt thyself like the eagle and set thy nest among the stars, I will bring thee down, saith the Lord. God stands against us in our pride. We do well to take heed of the warning offered by James here that if we live for ourselves, we are opposed by God. Secondly, if you lose yourself in humility, you will be blessed by God, graced by God. That verb resist is in the present tense. God is resisting you. But I like the fact that when we come to gives or giveth, it is also in the present tense. God gives continually in an ongoing way his grace to those who are humble who have a right disposition or view of themselves before God. We talked about this before, but again, uh, not in some kind of self-disparagement, like I'm absolutely no good, but to go, I'm created in the image of God, but I am deeply flawed by sin. I stand in need of help. I am weak. I stand in need of God's grace. When we recognize our sinfulness, when we see our weakness, when we go to God for help, He gladly, generously, and in light of the beginning of the verse, he greatly gives his favor to us, gives enablement that we might believe him and obey him. That's how grace continues to flow. In the midst of our selfishness, our sinfulness, he gives more grace. How does he keep going? He gives it to those who are humble. So the question is, what does humility look like? How how do we do humility? And certainly we could go to many texts in Scripture and maybe build out a a very thorough list. We're just going to stay right here and look at the commands that follow. As I mentioned this morning, in verses 7 to 10, we are given 10 rapid-fire commands. Uh, It's just one of those sections like Romans 12 would be or Ephesians 4 and 5 would be where it's command, 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 command. For our sakes this evening, we're going to group them into three categories and particularly on the last one, a few subcategories as well. We look at the conduct of humility. Let's look at it first authoritatively. What does humility look like in relationship to authority? I thought about earlier asking you in the introduction. I did not, but I'll just ask you to consider it now. Who's your authority? Right? We, we spend time with children saying, here's who your authority. Remember, you need to obey authority. Well, for everyone here, from the youngest to the oldest, who are your authorities? The reality is we all have them. And here, James reminds us that of the utmost importance in the practice of humility is how we act under God's authority. We look at this in submission to God. 
He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That word to submit, we've talked about it many times, means to arrange oneself under. In military context, to fall into due rank. To go, this is my position. I'm not the one who's in charge. I am the one who is to receive orders and to submit to orders. Again, I think this is somewhat countercultural in our day, and even if it's not countercultural, it is counter our flesh. Most of us don't like being told what to do. We want to have a say, we want to have our independence. And yet we're reminded here that when it comes to humility before God, we say, God, I'll arrange myself under you. What you say is what I do. God, the way that you tell me to guard my words, I'll guard my words. God, the way that you tell me to interact with others, the way that you tell me to work, the way that you tell me I'm to operate in my home, God, your word will dictate my thinking and my living in every area. Again, we can look through Scripture and realize this theme of submission, of arranging yourself under, shows up in so many contexts. You know, often we talk about it in terms of marriage and a wife's role to husbands, and that is biblically true. But can I remind you, we're also all told that we're to do this to government. We're actually told to do this in relationship to masters, or we could say in modern context, employers. We're actually told to do this in relationship to one another within the body of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, 21. You know what? Be yielding, putting yourself under others. But it all starts when we submit ourselves first to God. Say, God, you are the one who is my master. You are the one who is my authority. What you want done, your will will be my priority. Your word will be what I obey. I will believe you, and I will seek to please you. Within the conduct of, we've looked at the conduct of humility authoritatively, but secondly, let's look at it relationally. Relationally, he gives two commands here. Uh, and in the commands, he uh, gives an imperative and then gives kind of a consequence or a command and then a consequence. To go, you do this, and if you do, here's the result. The first is a negative command. He says, resist the devil. The result, he will flee from you. So if, if you're going to yield to God and say, God, I'm submitted to you, I also need to then stand against what you tell me to stand against. Our responsibility is given as a command. That word resist shows up. We've already seen it in relationship to God towards the proud. But now we're told when it comes to the devil, the one who exalts himself against God, the one who desires to be God's replacement, that's the one we need to stand against to be arrayed in battle against, to go, no, I'm not going there to that temptation. I won't think that way. I won't choose to live that way. I won't live for me. I love the result here. He will flee from you. You know what? If I'm going to stand against the devil or temptation or his forces, he leaves, he loses because I'm yielded to God. We're yielded to God. But as we look at the conduct of humility relationally, it's not just negatively, like here's what you do with the devil. It is certainly positive when he says, draw nigh to God. And here's the result. He will draw nigh to you. So think about this with me for just a moment. 
this week, how did you draw nigh to God? What did it look like for you? There are probably several right answers here, and I'm not looking to check off Marxists to the right answers. I'm asking you to think about in your life, what did it look like to draw nigh to God? Maybe think of it for just a moment by way of application um, in your human relationships, right? Uh, it could be a child, could be a friend, could be a spouse. You're like, you know what, I want to I, I just be close with that person. I want them to know I care. It takes time, does it not? It takes communication. In the busyness of our world, it takes intentionality. It takes thoughtfulness. I wonder if we could look like we would at a human relationship and go, you know, I'm going to intentionally, purposefully draw nigh to God. We have so many venues to do it. And again, I realize I'm talking to people who are here on Sunday night. I hope part of your answer in drawing nigh to God is being here. To go, God, this is your bride. This is part of your bride. God, I, I want to be here. I want to hear from you through your word. I want to worship you in song. I want to be used by you to minister to someone else. I want to see your grace at work through the gifts that you've given to me. God, I want to draw close to you. That can be part of it just in being here. But certainly going, well, God, you've communicated to me here. Doesn't matter to me if it's one verse that you read and just really focus in on, or one chapter or more, to go, God, I want to hear from you. I, I want to draw nigh to you. I, I need to think about that. That, that. that phrase caught me. That verse caught me. I need to turn it on. I need to memorize that because I just want to know what you've said. I want to draw nigh to you. We could go where we talked this morning in light of chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Go, does it show up in the way that we pray? Right? I'm drawing nigh to God by talking to him, by pouring my heart out to him, by saying, God, here's where I'm at, here's what I'm struggling with. God, here's what I love about what I've seen in my life and how you've worked. God, I just want to say thank you. Right? It helps me, again, to think about our human relationships. Those that we want to spend time with, that we love, we work to spend time with. We say, you know what, I'm going to carve that out. I'm going to make sure, I'm going to maximize that time. I wonder if that shows up in our view of God, to go, God, I, I need you, that mark of humility, that, that knowledge of our need. So I'm going to draw nigh. I'm going to stay close. Notice the result, and he will draw nigh to you. What ought to catch you about that? Think about that for a moment. Like, what ought to catch you about that? You reach out to God. You draw close to him. And he responds. He's not going to leave you hanging or stand you up. He draws nigh to you. What does that mean? The creator. Who spoke it all into existence draws nigh to you. The one who holds all things together, 
right? Colossians 1.16, by him all things consist. Draws nigh to you. It's not like he's like, well, let me see if I can carve out 15 minutes in my schedule. It's really full. I got a lot going on. Right? He says he draws nigh to you. He's going to be close to you. The one who is creator, the one who is sovereign, the one who is your savior draws nigh to us because we know that we need him, because we've made time for him. It is worth drawing nigh. Again, we're so privileged kind of on this side of the cross. That text in Hebrews 10 comes to mind that reminds us that in the Old Testament law, they didn't have the privileges that you and I have the access to God that you and I have. They went through priests. They went through feast days. They went through sacrifices. But we're told in Hebrews 10 verse 19 that in Christ there's been this new and living way that we have been granted. That is to say through the veil of his flesh that we can draw nigh with full assurance, like not even questioning, wondering, can I be here? It's like, no, you can draw nigh because of Jesus. Humility shows up relationally to God. Saying, God, I need you. I want to spend time with you. You draw nigh to him, he draws nigh to you. We've looked at the conduct of humility authoritatively and relationally. Now third, we look at it repentantly. So I was working through this last week. I kind of shoved this initially under relationally. Because in essence, we can't have a relationship with God without what the next verses say. For us to even consider drawing nigh to God, we must deal with ourselves. We have to deal with our sin. right? We've already been told we, uh, friendship with the world is an enmity and we are an enemy of God. And so now we're told, repentantly, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted. Mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to heaviness, or to mourning, your joy to heaviness. What are the commands? Just start to fly here from the Spirit of God through James, saying here are action steps that you need to take, and the language is very representative of the Old Testament customs, the Old Testament laws. We keep in mind James is writing to 12 tribes scattered abroad. He's writing to Jewish believers so he uses that language to help them understand they need to purify themselves before God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. He starts externally. Deal with the wrongs that you've committed. But he goes internally. Purify your hearts. He returns to that same theme from chapter 1, verse 8, the double-mindedness of them. Saying you stand in need of making things right. Again, from a New Testament perspective, past the Old Testament laws and customs, we often simply and rightly go and say, John, 1 John 1, 9. If I'm going to cleanse my hands, if I'm going to be made right, then I need to confess my sins. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you are clean. You are purified. Practically, again, there may be steps to, in order to make things right to go, and I need to confess to this individual. I need to ask their forgiveness as well. But in addressing what humility looks like, he says repentance is needed. To go, you know what? I was wrong. What I said, what I did, what I thought, it was wrong. 
I need to make it right. So yes, I'm right with others, but in the text, more importantly, so that I am right with God. He not only addresses steps to take, I believe as you read verse 9, you're looking at these attitudes, these addresses attitudes or attitudinal change to make, we could say. It says, be afflicted, mourn, weep, right? That word afflicted means to experience sorrow, to be sorry for your sin, to go, you know what, I truly regret that. It's that 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow worketh to repentance. To be afflicted and mourn, to grieve. Trust you've been there before. It's not a pleasant time where we look and go, I can't believe I did that. And the consequences of it. The sin is grievous. Saying, have the right attitude and disposition towards sin. We live in a day where we're almost kind of cavalier and be like, yeah, that wasn't good. Yeah, I'm sorry. We kind of move on. Um, James is challenging our flippant disposition. So be afflicted. Mourn. Weep. That external indicator of, you know what? There's something going on. I'm broken over my sin. Rather than laughing it off, letting your laughter be turned to mourning. Like, no, everything is not okay. I have to deal with this. Your joy to heaviness. Saying this is what the believer's true response to sin and unfaithfulness looks like. It's not simply tolerating sin or minimizing sin or excusing sin along the way. It's recognizing the gravity, the difficulty, the sadness, and seeking to turn away from it in humility to return back to God. You know, in our busy, fast-paced life, we can kind of move on to the next thing, whether it's something with work or responsibility or even just our entertainment today. I'm distracted, I'm moving on to the next thing. Instead of going, you know what, that was wrong. It's an offense against God, potentially an offense against someone else. And in humility, go, I gotta make that right. I'm broken over my sin. James concludes with a kind of a summary command. He told us, here's your selfishness on display, but God gives more grace. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So here's what humility looks like in dealing with sin and relationship to God. And he comes out and says, so, last command, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Again, you think about what it means to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. It's not like, well, do they see me as proud or humble? What do, what do people at church think? Doesn't matter. Like in the sight of God, admit your need, your weakness. Draw nigh to him. Make things right. And God will respond with grace, exalting you in his time and his way. Let's pray. Fathers, we've gone to your word today. I would ask once more that you would help each believer to fight against selfishness and pride. Lord, we consider this morning the devastating effects that those can have in our own lives and in our relationships. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us by your spirit, through your word, to see our weakness, our sinfulness, our need of you. That we would live in humility, recognizing that we do need your grace. Lord, I pray that we would seek to do that 
by arranging ourselves under you, submitting to you, submitting to your word, drawing close to you in our walk with you, spending time with you, being amazed at the fact that you in return draw nigh to us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us in fighting temptation, but also in seeking to make things right when we sin and do wrong. God, we do thank you that in the midst of our sinfulness, you chose to give more grace. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't trample over that, but that instead we would humble ourselves and bring glory to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.